You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. Today, we have another really high-level guest coming to the studio today, an expert in his own right, a leader in the industry. It's Nathan Blackburn, CEO of Cedar Woods. Nathan, thanks so much for coming in. It means a lot to me and I'm sure a lot to the listeners as well. Afternoon to you, Trent. Nathan, what a career you've had so far. What you've achieved in the last 20 years, it's been a long time loyal to a very impressive company and you've achieved a lot in that time frame. But as I always do with guests we've had on the podcast where we can look up to you, I'd like to go right back to the start where you were getting out of school. I assume that was Guilford Grammar, just like your brother. That's right, yes. And get an idea of where your head was at at the time. Did you ever think you were going to be CEO of a major property development company? I certainly had ambitions from a very young age to be in property. In fact, it was almost like a default position for me. Having grown up in property with my father running a successful real estate business, I'd been around it. Uh, I'd worked in that business during school holidays and on the weekends, handing up brochures, whatever it might be. So I had a good familiarity and a good understanding with the various aspects of the property industry and what it offered and I liked it. When it came to year 12 and filling out the top three preferences of university courses, more than most, and I quite vividly remember this, how simple it was just filling out the top three preferences because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. There was one property course available at the time in Perth and that was Valuation and Land Economics at Curtin. Still there Uh, today. And still there today and a well-regarded course. So I did that and came out with valuation and business qualifications. Having your brother sit in that chair as well, Paul, he told me he wasn't that interested in property at the time coming out of school. It wasn't an ambition for him. He was more interested in marketing and he didn't start in property, right? Whereas yourself, it's so cool to see the differences in your personality where clearly straight away, ambition, passion for property, got it from dad and switched on from the start about what dad was doing. Yep. Didn't become a real estate agent though, did you? No, that's right. I came out as a property valuer. I worked as a trainee valuer with Bankwest or then R&I Bank. I did that for a couple of years, enjoyed it, then moved into property management where I was managing a portfolio of CBD and suburban commercial and retail assets. I worked with a company called Churchill Knight and had two really excellent mentors that I have lessons that I carry through to me. Ivor Cohen and Aldo Giannotti were great mentors of mine in this space and it was very valuable. What did you learn at the time, do you think? What were those key lessons? Property management, long way from where you are today. It was very much on the technical side, handling tenants, leasing negotiations, shopping centre redevelopment, managing landlords, clients of the property management business, many key lessons. Didn't want to get into dad's business? After spending some time with Churchill Knight, Ivor and Aldo, I then went overseas, worked for a couple of years over there in funds management with JLL in London, then worked in property development in Prague in Czech Republic for a year, came home and then worked for my father's business for a period of time. And that was something I always wanted to do and enjoyed it very much. Can we track back a little bit there? You worked in Prague. Yep. What's life like there in that space? It was the Czech Republic back then, right? What's the difference in working in this space in a city like Prague? 
So I was there in 97, nearly a decade after the Berlin Wall came down and Eastern Europe opened back up. And it's fair to say that property development is much more complex there, magnitudes more complex than we would have here. There were 44 authorities that we needed the sign-off from in order to undertake a development. You're often dealing with buildings that are from the medieval period yeah, or, 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 or the Gothic period <laughs> yeah. or, or the Baroque period. And so these are two, three, four, five, six hundred year old buildings that you're converting into a hotel or a shopping centre. And you have to respect uh, the history of that, right? Absolutely. And it's what makes these places special, their character and their history. How do you get there in the first place? How do you get the transfer to a place like that? I always wanted to work somewhere in Europe and a bit off the beaten track. I met a Czech girl when I was living in, in London, my now wife. So we moved to Czech back to her home country. I worked in Prague. She worked in her hometown of České Budivice. We so you were following the... your heart. Yeah, maybe. very much so. Yeah. You know, but also following my desire to work in property in a faraway place. Well, it's the great thing about the industry, isn't it? There's property everywhere. It doesn't matter which city you go to, or what level, first world, second world, third world, there's always property development needs and opportunities. Yeah. And there, there are no property degrees, or there certainly weren't at the time in cities like Prague and places like the Czech Republic. They were importing skills. So there were Americans, there were Englishmen and Australians uh, actively working in real estate and property development in Prague. So what brought you home? I'd had a couple of years on the road. I was keen to return home and uh, my relationship with Andrea had evolved at that time. I asked her if she was keen to come back to Australia with me, which she was. Lucky Uh, man. Yes. So then started working with my father. And what we were doing at that time was putting together property developments in major urban regeneration projects like East Perth and Subiaco. And this area of property is what really sparked my passion. Having worked in valuations, property management, funds management, it was property development that was most interesting to me. It was challenging, it was dynamic. I enjoyed it a lot. Was it child's play, comparing it to the complexity you spoke about in Eastern Europe? Everyone talks about the planning system here in Australia as being complex uh, at a local level, at a state level, but I've obviously seen much worse in Eastern Europe. But there are aspects of property development that are certainly complex, and that's really what makes it interesting. Not only every city or every country, but every local government has its own complexities, where one region of Perth or of Australia is complex and other is not, and vice versa. So you, yeah. you're facing new challenges, different development types, whether it's land development or apartment development. So there are complexities that one have has that the other one doesn't. Financing yeah. these sort of things can be often way easier in one compared to the other. Yeah. Sales, for example, you know, it's a totally different kettle of fish. So you're right, you're continually probably learning along the way every time you're doing a new development in a new council, even if you've done 10 somewhere else down the road. Yeah, and at different times in the cycle, different points in the development process can be easy or complex. Mm. So you're doing well with Dad. You're making your mark in East Perth, Subiaco Square, these places that are still making a difference today. Where does Cedar Woods come into this? So I was really enjoying my time working on these projects, particularly Subiaco Square. We got our foot on some major projects that we needed some help with financially. And for example, we bought Mervac in, to the Burswood Lakes project, which we were shortlisted on, but needed some assistance with and ended up really 
passing over to Mervac to take on in their own right. We brought Stockland into the Subiaco Square project. That was their entry into WA. They were quite a passive partner initially, but became more active towards the end. These were great projects for Perth and great projects for me to cut my teeth on. Then I was interested in relocating to the east to try my hand at property development on the east coast. That's what drove me. Nothing drove me away. It was really just the draw of working in property development in Melbourne particularly. So I went to Melbourne for the first time, really enjoyed it, went back to my wife and said, let's move to Melbourne. So I went there and worked in property development for a couple of years and then got a call from Cedarwoods. I knew the managing director from my Perth days and he was looking for someone to start up the East Coast operations for Cedarwoods. So I came aboard as the Victorian manager to really build that portfolio and to deliver upon and execute a diversification strategy for the business. So you're really starting a brand new office, building your team, picking your people, I assume, with some backing, obviously, from a listed company based out of Perth. But in the same sense, you're nearly starting your own little startup office. Yeah, look, it was an excellent opportunity. I didn't say yes straight away. I had a good think about it and saw a good board, a good management team, a good portfolio and a good ethos, if you like. So I took that job, initially building the Victorian portfolio. After a few years, then moved to Queensland and built the Queensland portfolio. And then a couple of years after that, built the Adelaide portfolio. And I was then managing the East Coast operations, if you like, for Cedar Woods. Then was offered a COO position, looking after operations nationally. And then in 2017, the long-serving and well-regarded managing director, Paul Sadlier, informed us of his retirement. And then I was offered the position with Cedar Woods to run the business and return to Perth. Well, you would have had to have been the natural successor for a guy. It sounds like Cedar Woods were very lucky to have someone like you across the other side of the country because without that ambition, without the location for starters, not many companies that start in Perth really have the bandwidth They might try, but not many succeed in becoming a national company with a national footprint. It's a really good story that started before my time. But for a Perth-based business to successfully expand nationally and be well regarded Mm. for the quality and sustainability of its developments nationally is a great achievement. And to maintain that as well, property development is very much a project-based business, right? You can have a development there that lasts two or three years, but unless you bring more projects on through that pipeline, it doesn't sustain itself. You're still a Perth-based company that did a couple of projects in other places where opportunities popped up. Cedarwood is definitely a national brand these days. Property development can be a lumpy, cyclical business. And so we were determined from the start with our strategy to try and iron out those lumps. So what we did is developed a strategy of diversification by product type, price point and geography. So we were a Perth-only land subdivider. Mm. But we made a decision that we wanted to be in multiple geographies with multiple product types in order to create a broad customer base. What we didn't want to be was exposed to a single market and a single buyer profile, because that means cyclical earnings. And so what we've been able to do really successfully as a business is broaden our suite of products from land only 15 odd years ago to now where we're doing a thousand dwellings a year, of which would be around four to 500 land lots, two to 300 apartments, and then a couple of hundred townhouses per annum. That's the cool thing about property development is you're 
always have these opportunities to not get stuck in a niche if you don't want to. Some love their niche. Some love being apartment mm. developers like Paul. Some love being land developers like your satellites, for example, right? That's, that's mm. what they're known for. Mm. They, they rarely step out of their remit. But you guys focus on mitigation through diversification. As a listed company, reliability, consistency of earnings is important. Mm. And for that, you need scale. And for that, you need diversification. Having just a single product in a single geography, it is a much more difficult existence uh, if you're a listed entity. Was there not a perceived risk of entering new frontiers on a location basis and not having the connections, not understanding who are your power brokers, who's going to give you the answers, who are the consultants I should be working with, what are the planning schemes, not knowing you're walking into an absolute disaster that someone has sold you. In Perth, you, you should know it. You go, well, I know where the opportunities are, I know where the serious risks are, I know how to stay away from that risk because that's property development in a sentence really. It's always avoiding risk, right? Because yeah. it, it's inherently profitable as long as you avoid risk. It's pretty hard to do when you're continually developing in new locations you may never have even flown to before. And Cedar Woods has made some fairly audacious decisions moving into new markets with quite large scale and complex developments. And each time we have done that, it has come off and been fruitful for the business short and long term. I think of Williams Landing, a defence airfield we purchased off the Victorian government in Melbourne. I think of our Ellendale land holding that we purchased in Upper Kedron uh, for $68 million. I think of the largest project in Adelaide, which is Cedarwoods Development called Glenside, three kilometres from the city, a thousand dwellings. All of those were fairly audacious decisions. But how we get comfortable with that is two things. One, disciplined, thorough, measured decision-making. And secondly, building a team of consultants and staff around us in order to mitigate those risks of entering a new market. Are there any decisions you think the business has made in the last 15, 20 years where you go, probably wasn't the right decision at the right time in the right place? Whenever we have gone into a, a regional market, a regional town, it's been a volatile experience. Like a South I, Headland? Either really good or really difficult. Yeah. Yes, let's talk about South Headland, mm. where we had a few hundred lots, of which we sold something like 250 within a matter of 18 months or two years. But the remaining 50 lots took us six years to sell. And that's probably the profit those 50 lots? Well, well no, it, that project was actually quite uh, profitable because we sold the 250 considerably quicker than we expected okay. and for considerably more. But it's just the administrative pain, yeah. the administrative burden of managing the remaining stage at a project like that for five or six years. Mm. It's just hanging on, essentially. Yeah. Yep. Do you have a shining star that you wish you had 10 more? of those projects. So we have 34 developments and there's five or six that are, are what I'd call star performers. Star performers in terms of consistent demand for the product and have delivered a high quality and innovative product and have very strong margins because we've bought particularly well. So I think of uh, say Williams Landing, which is a master plan community in an infill context in Melbourne's West. So 275 hectares, which we bought for $10 million that delivered 3,000 homes and a major town centre. Mm. So it's been going for about 20 years and it's got another decade to go. And it was cash flow positive in its sixth month. So was this one of your first ever purchases? Because you've been at City Awards for 20 years. 
Cedarwoods purchased this project as an industrial land holding in 1997. Okay. I came aboard in 2002 when it was an industrial project with some uncertainties around it. When I came aboard, I worked with the then managing director, Paul Sadlier, to say this is an underutilised opportunity to be throwing 10 sheds on such a strategic site mm. in Melbourne. So the board backed me in a very long and arduous planning process to convert employment land into residential land with the employment to be delivered in a different form in a concentrated format in the town centre. An activity centre, yeah. Correct. But I mean, think about it. You've been right, working on this project, highly successful, yeah. for 20 years. That's a, I mean, a lot of people aren't even in the same company for three or four years in a row. This has been your life's work in a way. Yeah, look, it's been uh, an important project for the company, a project that I'm very passionate about, just uh, seeing it turn from a paddock into a new town mm. and one that we have close to 10,000 uh, happy residents living in. I think that's one thing that a lot of people forget the fulfillment side for property developers is yes, it's an exciting industry to be in. Yes, you're solving a lot of problems, but at the end of the day, you are creating homes for people, whether you're a land developer or an apartment developer, you are making places where people can live that they otherwise wouldn't have. If you didn't make those decisions, take those risks, undertake that work, these people wouldn't be able to live here. It's pretty cool to say that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're very much a values-based, purpose-driven organisation. And we talk about our purpose of being creators of long-term value for our shareholders through the creation of vibrant um, communities. And we live and breathe that purpose every day. It's part of my role as a CEO to espouse the values of the business, talk and provide clarity on the purpose of our business. And I'd like to think that throughout our organisation, we have a very solid understanding of what we're about and how we're going to achieve it. Why we do it. You speak about diversification. One thing I've noticed from a cursory look is that WA, you focus on land development. Victoria, there's a lot of apartments. Adelaide and Brisbane, there's townhouses. Is there a reason for that? Has it just happened that way? Is that where you see the opportunities have been in, with, with regards to the margins across the country? Do people in Western Australia pay more for land? Do people in Melbourne pay more for apartments and therefore that's why they stack up? Or is it just opportunities based as they've come up? Or is it also the competencies of the people you have on the ground? There's a few reasons for that. I think I'd start with the fact that I came from a built form background mm. in Perth. It's what I grew up with. It's where my experience was before I started with Cedar Woods. So my natural tendency was towards built form developments. And so they're the sorts of opportunities that uh, myself and the team there naturally tended to hunt down outside of WA. Mm. Very much the, the people that I got aboard as well in those early stages were key to the types of opportunities that we converted. Would have been pretty hard to convince a ingrained listed company based in land development in WA to start taking some punts on some apartments and mixed use around the country. That would have been some pretty hard conversations. On the contrary, they were easy conversations. And that's the great thing about Cedar Woods and the board that we have and had at the time. There's an entrepreneurial flair with the company and that comes from the top. Our chairman and deputy chairman have been there since the start, Rob Brown and Bill Hames, they're considered and measured decision makers, but also quite happy to back new business ideas. Personal questions, if I can. Do you do your own developments? Do you have time to do your own things, whether it's yourself and your wife or, for example, I might 
every now and again do a development with the old man just to do something together. Is there a Nathan Blackburn portfolio? As you'd expect, the role that I'm in is a fairly time-consuming and intensive (laughs) one. So my personal investment activities really are just focused on passive property, uh, particularly residential. Over the years, we've occasionally purchased uh, residential property that we that we simply rent out. That's it's very interesting because for someone who's got such a flair for development and the risk profile that comes with that, someone who tr- has travelled the world for new opportunities to have such a risk averse personal strategy of passive investment, it must take some restraint, Nathan. I get my fulfilment through my role. Yes, of course. Uh, I'm pretty happy with how things have turned out. Your dad is entrepreneurial. Yeah. Your brother is. You ever get? Any chats around the dinner table? Why aren't we doing something together? No, not really. Certainly, as you'd imagine, property is a very common topic of conversation when we get together. Of course. We're all very close and we get together regularly. We enjoy the fact that we're all in the same industry doing similar things. It all just works well. You're one of the most experienced property developers in the country. You've been doing this for a long time. You manage and have the respect of many people and manage some pretty serious and complex projects. I know this is probably a, a uh, controversial question, but never thought of starting Nathan Blackburn Property Group or anything like that? As I said, I'm very happy with, with my lot. Every day has been different uh, that I'm w- with uh, Cedar Woods. Uh, so it's 20 years now. Yeah, uh, I've grown with the business as it has grown. Every day has been challenging. And so I'm happy with the, the story. There's been forks in the road in my life and along the way. I could have gone left, but I chose to go right. And I'm pretty happy and have no regrets with the path that I've taken. Well, and and nor should you. You're in one of the most powerful but privileged positions in property development in Western Australia. Everyone knows you are not only for your own personal successes, not only for the family name, but mostly for the position you hold at Cedar Woods. So there is no reason to ever leave this business. But at the same time, I'm sure you would have had many opportunities to either do your own thing, people tapping you on the shoulder, and that would take restraint. And, and most importantly, the value that I'm probably pushing towards here, loyalty. It's a yeah. huge part of, I think, the decision-making clearly for you to still be at Cedar Woods 20 years later. Not only has it done a lot for you, I'm sure, you've had a lot of successes there and, and achieved a lot, but you've given a lot back as well. Yeah, and this is something I do say to, to younger people that I talk to in the industry. Loyalty often pays off. Changing jobs regularly has some benefits, mm. but it also has a lot of disadvantages. I, as a general rule, disregard CVs that I see where people are jumping around from role to role too quickly. I get that different sectors and different companies offer different experiences, and that's a wise thing to do in one's career, but you've got to find a balance. It's a great part of Cedar Woods' story that we have a fairly stable senior management team and board. It's certainly a trait that I look for, and for us it's worked really well. Our senior management team have been with us for a considerable period of time. Let's talk about the market. Let's talk about your perspectives on what's going on in Western Australia right now. I'm not too interested with what's going on in Victoria or Mm. Queensland, and neither are most of our listeners, but your perspective on Perth and this market. We're in a situation right now where we've seen a couple of years of finally some strong growths, demand that has been double historically what it's been for the five years, supply that is half of what it's been back in 2019, vacancy rate in the rental space, which underpins the demand and supply situation that is historically lower than it's ever been before. Interest rates that are rising, but are equal to where it was back in 2018-19, where no one was complaining about it, given 2007-2010 interest rate numbers. We're back in a market now where most would consider in the short term is probably a balanced market with just as many arguments for growth as 
you'll hear people for negative growth. My personal perspective, we've still got a long way to go in the Perth market simply because of the chronic issues of undersupply and a sustained demand position. What's your thoughts on where Perth's market is right now as a whole? I think Perth is the best placed capital city in terms of the short and medium term for property. And that's driven by a few things, but mainly it's relative affordability. If you look at the median house price of Sydney, Melbourne, even Brisbane, in Sydney it's 1.3 million. It's just over 500,000 here. Mm -hmm. And it's been at that place for a long time. So we have a relatively strong economy, the lowest unemployment rate in the country in Western Australia. Wages are growing stronger here and we have the cheapest property. So I think that bodes well and I think we'll see the more affordable capitals, particularly WA, outperform the less affordable capitals. At present, you'd say conditions are fairly tough and there's a real dichotomy here. And that is what you referred to in the low vacancy rates and the growing rents. That is the best indicator of supply. At the moment, there's just not enough supply. You'd say the same for almost every capital, but it's, it's quite extreme here. And we haven't seen the end of the reducing vacancy rates and the climbing rents. There's more to come because it is going to take some time to materially address the supply side. You were quoted a couple of months ago as the first person to call it really that you expected, which has been, I think, the big issue for providing supply at both the built form and the land development space, that supply costs should start coming down in the next few months. Do you wanna explain that? Builders have had an unprecedented amount of work. And it's fair to say the situation that's being experienced in the construction sector now is an aberration. And because it's an aberration, it's fair to assume that when those conditions that caused it pass, we will return to a more normalised market. And that means costs coming down. Already we're seeing front-end construction materials and labour costs coming down. So bricklayers, those sort of things, is that what you're talking about? Correct. Timber. Uh, concrete, slabs. Steel's uh, coming down 50 bucks a tonne last, yeah, last all, couple of weeks. All, all of that's coming down. The bottlenecks, the cost rises are now much more concentrated in the back-end trades, mm. those involved in roof covering, the roof plumbers, and so on. It's, that's where the issues are now. This will pass. Good progress has been made in delivering the homes that sold as a result of the stimulus. And the builders that we talk to talk about capacity to take on new work in 2023. Mm. So whilst at the moment there's still a bit to do, our prediction is that in 2023, whether that's early, mid or late, it's too hard to say, there will be significant capacity uh, within the building sector to take on new work and that will result in the cost reductions. You were railed in the paper a few months ago for shelving a large townhouse project in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. Obviously an astute decision. Why would you build right now if you don't have to, given the comments you've just made about future cost reduction? But obviously it doesn't help the supply side as well. So again, we're in this catch-22 right now where we need more supply in the market, can't provide it, costs too much, need to jack up prices on buyers as well. I guess that's a perfect example of what's going on across the whole industry. It's not just Mm. Cedar Woods. You guys are one of 100 developers, different housing types, different development types, apartments. Half the apartments in Western Australia have been shelved in the last 12 months, all waiting for the same 
time frame you're looking at talking about. Land development cost has gone through the roof as well when it comes to retaining blocks, earthworks, sand, all these things, just insane costs coming through. Um, do you have any thoughts here on how we fix this problem? Is it just going to work itself out? We will return to a situation of more equilibrium. At the moment, the maths doesn't work on some projects. There hasn't been a commensurate rise in revenues mm. as the rises in costs. But we will return to a situation of equilibrium, really, because we, we have to. The supply is needed. That's right. It's basic economics. In Queensland, there is a situation where sales have been very strong, price growth has been very strong, and uh, the construction sector has really is going through an unprecedented situation. And it's in no one's best interest, purchasers included, to be proceeding with a project when there is uncertainty over the capacity of a builder to complete a job. Mm. Sometimes it's just better to wait until there's a more sensible environment in which to deliver a project. When the music stops, see who's still sitting on the chair. Yeah. yeah. We talk about Brisbane here, uh, I guess, as a bit of a, an analogue to us. They always seem to be two or three years ahead of us in a cycle the difference there is that I've noticed the commentary from people like Daniel Davidson, for example, that whilst there has been a lot of rising costs in the same way in Brisbane and the apartment markets, so have the revenues, especially on off-the-plan situations. We haven't seen those same increases that Brisbane saw. Obviously, a lot of that comes from Sydney and Melbourne market pushing that through. But I would have thought, given the affordability factor here, that people in Perth could afford any price rises we would have liked to have or had to have passed on because of costs, that that would simply have been able to be passed through. But it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like in the apartment market, the buyer cohort has had to accept increased prices and therefore apartments are just shelved. Land development hasn't come on with another 20-30% increase in prices because of the cost increased cost of developing that land. It just hasn't come on yet. Do you think that a lot of developers in Western Australia are a bit gun-shy? So what has happened is, as a general rule, for example, with our 34 projects, revenue growth has exceeded cost growth and therefore margin improvement across, across many projects. But you're right, WA is where that has not been the case. Mm. We've got values that are similar to what they were 10 years ago. But we've had incredible cost growth. And there are multiple reasons for that. Buyer caution, buyer sentiment is a key part of that. The lack of population growth is another part of that. But it's, it's quite a complex question to answer because there's, there's, there's many aspects to it. But I am confident that it will rectify itself in time through both sides of the formula. Mm. A reduction in costs and an improvement in revenue. It's ridiculous that we have a situation where the median house price of Perth is lower than the median house price of Hobart. Yeah, by a long it, way. Which has 200,000 people. Yeah, it is. So insane. that's part of the underlying confidence I have in this market. And that's the case. Normally where an equation doesn't make sense or a situation doesn't make sense, it's for a reason. There's an opportunity to exploit there. Nathan, think about this being a soapbox for you for a, a few minutes to share some ideas just like you would on stage at a forum with UDIA or CEDAR or these sort of guys and if you had an opportunity to suggest some solutions that the government could be enacting from a state or local basis, is there anything that's a thorn in your side that you wish would be fixed or could be improved? There are significant components of risk in the property development process. One of those 
is, of course, the planning process. And across the jurisdictions that we work in, it's difficult at most levels of government to get planning approvals through. If we can find ways to abridge the planning process, to get more certainty in it at the time of acquisition, that will bode well for affordability and for supply. It's a message that has been conveyed many times by my counterparts in other businesses, in peer companies, but it is the key message. If we want to unlock supply, and address the affordability issue. We need to unlock the value, uh, the potential of, of land holdings, be they infill or urban fringe, and get them to market faster because that will translate to more certainty and lower cost of delivery. Mm. And that's what we're looking for. I don't think any property developer is out here looking to increase the cost of the next land development. There is a return required for the risk, and that's generally all we require to move on the project. There is no inherent greed in this, I don't think, but when costs continually rise because of extra time, extra hurdles, extra red tape, there is only one way to deliver the project, and that's through increasing prices. We have a competitive marketplace. That's right. And so we will naturally look to deliver our product in the most efficient way. We have to. Otherwise, we don't sell the product. We're competing with that many other developments that are coming on in a similar type or location. That's correct. Mm. We've got a few minutes left, Nathan, before you have to go. But mm-hmm. off air, we were talking about the challenges of running a company. Yours much bigger than mine, but still very similar challenges and responsibilities and traits that you need to be successful in doing so, different levels of management. What do you think it's taken for you to progress from aspirational valuation student at Curtin to being good in your functional role, finding opportunities, being a development manager, for example, A lot of people can achieve that over time, but then what does it take to be successful at the next levels of management? Getting tapped on the shoulder. I find whenever I promote someone in my business, they've earned it before I've tapped on their shoulder and the best ones are the ones that are surprised by the uh, promotion. It makes me feel so good inside. You were one of those people that was tapped on the shoulder and obviously you would have had aspirations, but you clearly would have earned that. What's kept you there? What got you there? Firstly, I'd say it's a privilege to have the job. It's an enjoyable one. I find it easy to get up every day. Every day is different. I have the responsibility for close to 100 employees uh, and their livelihood. I have responsibility for thousands of shareholders and the dividends that are so important to them. So it's a job worth fighting for. What makes a good CEO? How do you get there? There's obviously many components to that. But the first thing I would say is get results. The best way to get recognized is to get results in the job that you have. That's where you'll stand out. And as a more general statement, though, related, do everything exceptionally well. So not only get the good results, but do what you do in a focused, disciplined and thorough way. The other thing I'd say is go about getting your experience in a structured way. It helps in a role such as this to have experience across various sectors and at various levels across different functions because you bring all of that experience together in performing a CEO role. Does that mean being a part of an organization that can afford those opportunities to you? Because you spoke about not jumping around organizations. You didn't like to see that on a resume. But within your career, obviously, you had some early years where you tested the waters of where you wanted to be, who your partner was, where you wanted to live. 
but then you locked down on a, on a great company that then afforded you opportunities within that company but where you could add value across many roles in many places. They afforded me lots of opportunities. They gave me considerable scope in order to fulfill the mandate and I demonstrated loyalty and commitment in, in pursuing those things. So certainly I think when you're given a task, pursuing it with great vigour and, and passion will be key to success. This has to be the most stressful job I've ever had, but it's also the most fulfilling job. Mm. I'm constantly putting out fires, I'm constantly seeking and mitigating opportunities and risk, but it's by far the most fulfilling thing I've ever done and I'm so proud and lucky to be in this position and grateful every day. Is that the key to success? Is that every day, regardless of how hard it is, how stressful it is, how much anxiety it might create at certain times that you overcome, that under the foundation of it, you absolutely just love what you do and that's what makes it worth it? You're never going to get results. You're never going to be exceptional at what you do unless you love what you do and be able to demonstrate that passion consistently. So absolutely, that's essential. I would consider you to be a very lucky man to from so early in your life, have been afforded the opportunity to figure out what it is that you're passionate about through your dad's work in the first place. Because so many people, takes them years, decades, and they may never be given that opportunity to explore what makes them fulfilled and therefore be the best version of themselves at what that is. So many people get told what their career should be, accountant, lawyer, doctor, whatever it is they have an aptitude for, spend five, 10 years being good at it but not fulfilled by it, get married, have the kids and then sort of feel stuck in it. For you to know so early what you're passionate about and then drive yourself towards it, you create your own luck, I believe, but at the same time, just to have the opportunity to know that that's what fulfills you. People spend a lifetime looking for that. You're very lucky, Nathan, as well. Yeah, I agree, Trent. Nathan, thank you so much for the 40 minutes you've spent today on this podcast. I know so many people will appreciate the time you've given, not only to hear another successful property developer in Western Australia, you're another trailblazer who clearly demonstrates such a passion for what he does and such an aptitude for being very good at it, but also sharing those little stories that other people can clearly follow what you've achieved. It's very impressive, but other people can be you one day as well. And I think that's, for me, the biggest thing that most people should be able to get out of today is that your future can reflect the successes that he has achieved so far in his life. And I tell you what, for someone in his 40s as well, I'm excited to see what the next 10 to 15 years looks like. It's pretty exciting. You've been very kind. Thank you, Trent. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!